Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends. Are you ready for this episode? So we are going to be talking about the grape variety Palomino. It truly has a reputation for being low acid, maybe even a little bit flabby. It's low in sugars. It's quite neutral. It's easy to oxidize. This certainly doesn't sound like an interesting grape variety. Yet, there are certain people in the wine industry that are true believers, like my guest today, Christina Rasmussen. She is a wine writer, speaker, and has even made her very own still Palomino wine. And why? Because now, more than ever, there are these talented winemakers working with Old Vine Palomino and making wines with depth, with soul. The quiet type in the room, the one that, you know, when you finally sit down with them and you ask them some questions, you find out they are the most interesting at the party. So I'm fascinated to pick Christina's brain to hear more about her love for this grape variety and her love for farming, the soil, terroir. So she will be talking about some of her wine projects and how she brings the winemaker's story to life. And then we will be discussing Palomino and all the winemaking steps that she took to make her very own still white wine. I certainly hope you find this episode as interesting as it was for me to record. Don't forget, there is a transcript should you not hear fully the wineries that she recommends and you can find that link at the top of my show notes. So pour yourself that glass and enjoy. Okay, so Christina, I want you to tell everybody what we were kind of talking before I pressed the record button of how Burgundy seems to be the area that's inspired your wine journey. So how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I studied French at university down at the University of Exeter and um, have always loved France. I've always loved language. I'm actually Danish, so my first language is Danish. Um, ah, of course you are. Okay, yes. So it's three languages in the bag. Yeah, um, I wish Spanish as well, but maybe one day, maybe Italian too, but we can't do everything. <laughs> Not um, everything in a day, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, yeah, I was studying French and on my year abroad, I decided that I'd really love to do an internship. Um, but at the time, I guess like many young people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do for my career. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at various jobs ranging from fashion to law, um, applied for several things, didn't get several things, and actually saw um, an advert for one winery, which I didn't get. But I did get an internship with another winery, um, Louis de Tour in oh, burgundy yes not a bad one. Yeah, they have enough vineyards enough wines coming yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so um i packed my bags at 21 years old and moved to born mm -hmm. um where i had never been before and uh of course i'd drunk wine before um but i'd never really sort of sat down and studied burgundy and that's where it all really started i just became 
very quickly obsessed and mm -hmm. went straight down the rabbit hole. And I think for me, the initial um, thing that pulled me under really was the notion of terroir and how one vineyard can produce a wine that tastes so drastically different to the wine made from the vineyard next door. Mm. Of course, at that stage, I had uh, still a very basic knowledge. So I hadn't even considered all of the multiple other factors that play into terroir other than just soil type. Mm -hmm. But down the line, I, I sort of fell deeply in love with farming. And I think, yeah, the way that we can farm and and tend a vineyard will also drastically um, impact its taste. So it's it's a never ending journey of exploration, um, yeah, working in wine sure. and, and meeting winemakers and spending time in vineyards. And yeah, I guess I owe all of that to those early days in Burgundy. It's a beautiful start into the wine industry. I mean, <laughs> when you were doing the internship, what were you learning? What were you responsible for? So initially I was there for seven months and the first month I was really just shadowing um, my two bosses just to learn and take on board as much as I could. And then I was really managing um, a lot of, not managing, but <laughs> interning um, with regards to making sure that all of the mentions in the press had been taken out so that I could uh, store them all into a file and then mm -hmm. relay that information to, to the management team. Um, so whether that was articles on the tour or whether it was tasting notes, um, I very quickly got uh, an in-depth look at the sort of wine media landscape. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what forged what I did next, because I then went on to work in uh, wine PR and communications and consultancy in London for five years. Ah, um, okay. Because I knew that I loved to work in wine and I knew that I sort of had a grasp on PR. So um, when it came to that stage, I really just sort of Googled uh, Wine PR London, <laughs> not, not, not even knowing if that was a thing. But um, it was. But it was a thing. <laughs> and I emailed two firms and um, one got back, well, they both got back to me. One said, we can't take on any interns at the moment. But the other one said, oh, well, yeah, please come in and have a chat. And that was Sue Harris, my old boss, who has Westbury Communications. Okay. And um, so I interned there. And then from then on, I, I worked there for five years, going from junior account manager uh, or junior account executive rather um, up to account director. And, and was it there that you started writing because pff, writing now about wine is a huge part of your life? Yes, exactly. So ever since I've been a child, I've wanted to be a writer. Mm. Um, I actually used to write these little like novellas when I was like eight oh, years old. <laughs> I would love to see that. I know. Read one of them. <laughs> They're actually all about horses. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, so you again, the connection with the outdoors, it was there from the beginning. Yeah, always love nature farms. obsessed. Yes, mm -hmm, love mm -hmm. farms, love being outside, love animals, um, love anything that's nature related. And yeah, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but by the time I decided I wanted to work in wine, I didn't really know um, how to even get into wine writing or whether that was even sort of a thing at a more junior level. And um, I also knew that I just really wanted to get as much experience as I possibly could and as much knowledge before I really started to write so I could form my own opinions. Yeah. So I started a wine blog in, must have been about 2015, which at mm -hmm. the time was actually called Vintage of All Kinds, because I was also writing about vintage fashion. Oh, okay. Although yeah. that was really only probably three or four blog pieces, because I don't have the same passion, really, as I do for wine. <laughs> it slowly disappeared, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wine took over my life. Bottle by bottle. Um, exactly. And so it quickly rebranded to just my name. Mm-hmm. And during that time at Westbury, when I was still working in PR and consultancy, I was 
blogging sort of in all of my spare time so on in evenings and on weekends and my boss knew that I I love writing and that's what I ultimately really wanted to do so she actually incredibly gave me a leg up and introduced me to the team at the buyer and wow okay yeah so I started to to, (laughs) yeah I started to write a bit for them and yeah really enjoyed that process and also started to write a little bit for other people's websites such as Le Cave de Peren. I wrote a piece on Beaujolais Nouveau back in I think it was 2016 or 17 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah slowly but surely writing opportunities started to come by me more often and I wrote the chapters on Canadian wine for the British Columbia for Lonely Planet after going there on a press trip for the buyer and yeah I just fell so deeply in love with writing about wine that I got to the stage where I was thinking I'd love to do this full-time and maybe I can make it work freelance full-time and that was kind of serendipitous timing because that was the same moment that my two co-founders of Little Wine approached me with the idea of what would become Little Wine. Shall we talk about Little Wine then? Yes. So my two co-founders, they are Daniela Pilhofer and Peter Honiger, and they co-founded Newcomer Wines, um, which started from a tiny little wine shop uh, selling direct to consumer in Box Park and now has grown to an incredible importer representing um, wineries from France to Austria to the Czech Republic Mm. to Slovenia. And obviously they're very trade facing now. So the majority of the wines that they sell go directly into hospitality. But they had always wanted to do something that was more in the content space and the education space, especially just because it's an area that neither of them came from wine. They are both um, self-taught and they found that there's just sort of a really a lack of resources that bring the winemaker to the forefront because they, like I as well, have learned so much of our knowledge directly from the winemakers. But we're very lucky and fortunate to be in a position to do so. Whereas so many people might not get that FaceTime or that one-on-one time with winemakers. So Mm. that was really always our goal from the beginning was to bring the winemakers to the forefront. And so we started as a content platform back in April 2020, very much winemaker centric. So I was profiling winemakers from all around the world, always via either going to see them or interviews with them so that I can best put their stories um, in their own words, really, but via sort of me as the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the goal is just to put their their thoughts, their philosophies, their ideas, and yeah, everything that drives them to the forefront uh, with less scores. We don't score anything like that. We do sometimes write notes, but we try and always contextualize them and make them very fun. Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay. yeah, so initially we were also a bottle shop and wine club, but we quickly realized that actually we wanted to focus much more on the content and the education and that we don't see ourselves as becoming a wine shop at all. So we stopped selling wine and we're now building a new platform, which um, we're very excited to actually start trialing in just a couple of weeks time. Okay, so when this is out, everybody, it should already, well, potentially might be ready. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to be a platform that enables winemakers to communicate about everything that inspires them. So they can upload photos, videos, Mm. actually map their vineyards, all of these things that just bring to life their domain in a digital sphere. Oh, that's amazing. And on the other side, it will be a hospitality training tool, be able to train your staff to learn about the wines that you're pouring directly from the source, bottle by bottle. So that's the goal. We spent uh, almost a year and a half researching it um, and speaking to people in hospitality and speaking to winemakers to make sure that we're building something that's really valuable and that enables 
people essentially just to travel directly to the vineyards, but digitally. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, flights cost quite a bit of money and they get cancelled all the time these yes. days. Yes, so. <laughs> and of course our CO2 footprint too, which we must take into account. Sorry, I meant that first. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, so this platform that you're about to trial, that's going to be for hospitality. Is there still the original website that a consumer could go and just really dive deep into yes. understanding the farming life and of these winemakers? Yeah, so um, when we launched, so everything's kind of just shifting around in terms of the website, how it currently is. Um, so when we launched, we had a content subscription that everyone could sign up to. And okay. within that were the long format uh, profiles that I've written on now 160 plus winemakers, which ranges from like 1500 words to 3000 words with photography, oh gosh, yeah. sometimes documentaries as well. So we've made 12 uh, documentaries with winemakers. Oh, that's fun. And all of that okay. is going to shift online to an editorial platform, um, which will be free for everyone to access. So that's sort of really okay, our storytelling cool. narrative also for consumers. Lovely. Good. Everyone go across to Little Wine so you can know a little bit more <laughs> about what's behind the bottle. So if you were flying and meeting these winemakers and to get their stories has there been any that have really stuck in your mind has anything been extra special there are so many and I am so incredibly <laughs> fortunate to do this for a job and I do still pinch myself on a daily basis um I think during Covid of course it was very difficult for us because we launched in April 2020 and mm -hmm. um luckily I had so much content already in the bank from my previous travels so I was able to continue putting out winemaker profiles for several months but we got to probably July, August time and we were thinking, okay, we're, we're good for a few months, but what happens if this continues? And for now we mm -hmm. could travel because that was when um, borders just opened. So I got on the road um, for nine weeks with just oh, wow. me and a hire car and a tent. Just a tent? <laughs> just a tent, yeah. Although I did... I, so I stayed with some winemakers, I stayed in the tent sometimes, and then every now and then I would get an Airbnb just so I could, yeah, properly shower if I... <laughs> oh, I love that though. You're so free and rural. <laughs> okay, carry on telling the story. This is, actually, to be honest, this sounds a lot of fun. Yeah, so I started all the way down in Banyuls and then mm -hmm. drove the way... Right down in the south of France, okay. All the way down on the, on the border almost with Spain and then drove all the way up to Champagne and stopped at several winemakers en route. And yeah, the amount of people that I met there and just how forthcoming people are as well. That I think winemakers, they are, it's such an honour for us to be able to step into their lives and also for them to give us the time because of course they're so incredibly busy and they're working in the vineyards and they have always so much to do. So for that, for us to sort of just come in and, and spend half a day with them, it's it's really, yeah, I can't tell you how, how grateful I am to all of them. And yeah, from that trip in particular, uh, one that stood out, to me was Pedro's Blancas. So just okay. the most incredible domain in Banyuls, um, up in sort of the hillsides with very, very old vines. And it's just stunning what they're doing. And yeah, preserving the vines, but also just the most breathtaking place. And I can't even really give it justice in words. Um, I also <laughs> started to fly a drone, so I have some drone footage from there. So I definitely oh. urge you to take a look at those, but it's, it's a once in a lifetime kind of visit. And just seeing that vineyard, it's one of the most beautiful vineyards I've ever seen. 
Wow, really? And you have been to many places. You're going to put the up there. Okay, Banyuls. It's funny. I thought you might say somewhere in the Loire or it's, it's so interesting. Yeah. That you've, okay. Well, I mean, there's still so many places on my list as well, because when I tell stories, um, of course, it's not always from visits that I've done. So often also online via Zoom or via people that I meet in London. Um, but one in particular that recently stands out to me was profiling um, Domain Ligas in Pella in Greece. Okay. Ah, okay. Um, so okay. Meli Ligas, um, she's yeah the young woman now at the the head of that that winery, but also the vineyards. And what they're doing in terms of permaculture in particular is just uh, so inspiring, and I've learned so much from her. So. Did you say permaculture? Yeah. What is permaculture? So really just working entirely in tandem with what they have naturally growing in their vineyard and in the vicinity as well. Okay. And also in terms of soil management. So with them, they just let the the native grasses grow. Mm -hmm. And then they also do things like using chamomile um, in hot periods to help the vines to cool down and avoid sunburn. They also work with like a mineral that's called zeolite that's found nearby and that actually absorbs wow. water. So releases it slowly over time. Interesting. And yeah, she, her, she has such vast knowledge and she's also just so kind and she's experimenting all of the time and her wines are incredible. And yeah, it's a, a pleasure to spend time with her. Amazing. What wines is she producing? So her and her, her family are particularly well known for actually for bringing Roditas to the forefront because I think... Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, Roditas okay. gets yeah. A, a bit of an unfair rep sometimes in Greece, and they've really proved that you can make very qualitative and, and fine wine from Roditas. But mm-hmm. they also make an incredible Chino Mavro. So they make a, a direct press like a Blanc de Noir. They also make a very light and juicy and just delicious, um, almost like a, a Beaujolais style of Chino Mavro. And then they make sort of the more okay. um, structured Chino Mavro. I mean, it's such a chameleon grape, it can really do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. They make an amazing asiatico. They're also working with various other lesser known indigenous varieties. And yeah, it's, it, they're well worth checking out. Amazing. And of course, quite clearly, as you said, they're doing everything in a very holistic, yes. natural way. So the permaculture is taking maybe little bits of what are often used in biodynamics, mm-hmm. but not going by the lunar cycle. That's effectively what they're doing. Well, yeah, they also, she also works according to, to the lunar cycle. So I guess... Oh, she does as yeah, well. <laughs> I guess what they do, it's less... I suppose many of, many of their principles are biodynamic in nature, but they mm. also just go sort of above and beyond and just follow their own thought processes, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And also in terms of the soil management, biodynamics doesn't stipulate as much um, about no-till as as what what they're doing okay interesting i'm definitely I've, I've never tasted any of their wines so that's one for me to investigate now we're talking about storytelling mm-hmm. i know that you have always had a bit of a love affair with the great variety palomino mm-hmm. and of course that's going to lead mm-hmm. us on to a whole other story so why palomino can we talk about this great variety for a second yes well so i love all of the great great varieties of the world as well um so Mm -hmm. but I I think I'm always I've always been a fan of the underdog (laughs) and I I think that's also part of just me being a journalist is I always like to dig deeper and see if I can find Mm -hmm. the truth um and I feel like Palomino has often got an unfair rep in recent years when it comes to unfortified wine um of course when we talk about Palomino, we immediately think of sherry. It is the sherry grape mm-hmm. and it gives us the most incredible wines in the guise of sherry. Um, mm-hmm. But 
there are so few unfortified still white wines made from Palomino. That's changing now. There are now dozens that I can think of, but I had come across very little. And if we go back to probably about 2016 now, um, mm-hmm. I had tasted the wines of Eben Sadi, of the Sadi family wines, and yeah. Ardi Badenhorst as well. So both, of course... I just got back from South Africa, so I'm just like, uh, oh, it's, South African wine, but yes, yeah. and you've picked um, some pretty cult producers, but yeah. <laughs> it's just the best. I mean, that country, it's, uh, yeah, the, the wine scene over there is just electric. <laughs> exactly. It's exciting. There's so much movement. Yeah. I've said to everybody since I've got back, this is just nature HD. There's a mountain and a coastline almost on both sides no matter where you look nature galore yeah and affordable luxury yes you can actually go I've never been anywhere in the world where I've been able to eat such good food or stay in such good places and feel like I'm still saving money and just I mean (laughs) the nature is just incredible that the native fauna and flora and the shrubland that exists there and when I was there I, I took a photo of a malachite sunbird and I was just in heaven Oh, we had to skid around baboons on one of the main motorways. Yeah, I actually saw a lynx, a lynx in broad daylight. Did you? Yeah. Oh, now that is a, a thing for the tick list. Not many people yeah. can say that. We oh, were with them, um, with Eben Sadi, and we were driving to see the old Tavidpad vineyard. Um, okay. Which um, incredibly vines planted uh, at the beginning, starting from the late 1800s. And um, yeah, we saw a lynx in broad daylight and yeah I mean that's yeah a once in a once in a lifetime spot in the vineyard for sure Mm -hmm. but uh yeah yeah going back to Eden Sadi so you tasted the Palomino wine so I tasted two wines um one from Eben Sadi and one from Adi Badenhorst Eben's being Scorpion which is actually a 50-50 blend um of Palomino and Chenin Blanc and Adi's which is called Sudvandiade um meaning salt of the earth and that one's 100% Palomino but they come from the same plot and there's the same soul in both of the wines. They're both so saline, um, but also linear and lifted and with this mineral sort of poise. Um, and I actually had the chance to go to the vineyard last year. It was one of my bucket list vineyards. Um, and it's up in the middle of nowhere on a very rural farm called Bottlefontaine on the West Coast. And it's one of the wildest vineyards I've ever been in, um, if not the wildest, which is almost paradoxical to the linearity of the wine. Um, But the soil is actually sand on limestone, which is quite rare for South Africa. And maybe that's what gives it its linearity, that that limestone. I don't know, it's a mystery. Um, But what immediately made sense to me standing in that vineyard was the spine tingling energy that I felt that exists there. And that's exactly the same um, energy that you find in the wines. And I think already then I understood that Palomino can be a terroir translator um, and really show the essence of place in a wine. Okay, okay. So I had tasted these two wines and loved them both. Why? Why? I think particularly, yeah, particularly the the salinity. I love salt. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, there was just something that was so heightened in that expression in those wines that I hadn't experienced before. And it, it was just, they, they were wines that, I mean, especially back then they were a little bit easier to find um, that I kept coming back to whenever I could. If I saw them on a wine list, I they were the wines I would gravitate towards. And it had sort of just sort of already made me aware of the fact that Palomino was interesting. Mm-hmm. And 
Then shortly after, I first had the wines from Envinate and Suertes del Marquis. Mm, and I've just done a podcast on Tenerife, actually. Oh, awesome. Can't wait to listen to that. Yeah, I was just tasting, obviously, the, the Seven Fuentes. It's not their top, top wine, mm-hmm. but as their level entry, my God. And when we talk about volcanic wines and this kind of almost sulfurous nose, they are, they're all of them. They're, they're so unique. So different. So, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So you were tasting their Tasted wines. those wines. And the first one that I actually had from Envinate was the um, Benji Blanco. And I was just completely blown away. Um, It was sort of one of those, I've had several of these jaw drop moments in wine, but that was one of the top five. Mm. (laughs) And I couldn't believe the wine. It was just so expressive in that salinity, but also so incredibly light on its feet. It had almost this sort of ghost-like structure and Mm. it actually did haunt me. (laughs) I couldn't stop thinking about it. It, the kind of wine that I was waking up and thinking about. <laughs> and so I, I started researching those wines and discovered that Listan Blanco, which they're, they're made from, um, that's actually Palomino. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was like, ah, okay, yes, this this makes sense. Um, this grape, this grape is haunting you in general. It's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they all, mm-hmm. they all come from old vines as well. So yes. I really figured there must be something with Palomino in its old vine structure, its old vine form that produces yeah. something so inherently special. And of course, it's a very old grape variety. And yeah, records in Spain suggest that it may well have been planted as far back as the 1100s, possibly before. We don't really know. Of course, we've lost a lot of the actual documentation. Um, and of course, we have no way of genetically proving that. But um, we know that it's very old. And as such, um, firstly, because... Of course, it was around, but it was also very popular. Um, a lot of the material was brought to South America and up to North America as well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, of course, across to South Africa. Um, <laughs> and so I started just thinking in my head, there must be more old vineyards around of Palomino. Um, didn't know how to find them, though. <laughs> yeah. So how did you discover these old vines when considering Palomino is not something that is massively talked about? Yeah. Well, so I had decided that at this stage, so we're, we're now talking about maybe 2018, that I wanted to go and actually take a mini sabbatical and go and make wine because that was my biggest hole in my knowledge, but also just because I'm so passionate about wine that I just gravitated naturally towards wanting mm-hmm. to actually get my hands in wine. In that soil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dirty. <laughs> Get your hands dirty. Exactly. Um, And so I reached out to a friend of mine, Abe Schoner, um, a winemaker who has the Scolian Project, but also more recently the LA River Wine Company. Mm -hmm. And I asked him whether I could intern with him. And um, he, to my great surprise, said yes, because I had no experience. And um, I was thrilled with that. So I knew that I was going to be going over there for harvest in 2019. And Around the same time, I went over to Sonoma um, on a press trip and was tasting Mm -hmm. at a sort of a big group tasting and came up to the table of uh, Klein Vineyards and was tasting with Megan Klein and tasted their farmhouse white blend, which is a blend of several different white grape varieties. But she said... And wait, I bet there was Palomino in there. (laughs) Exactly. I'm getting it. I'm understanding what's happening here. Precisely. How much percentage was in that Only a small amount. Um, But she said, we have this very historic old vineyard called Bridgehead Vineyard and um, Bridgehead's in in Contra Costa and it mainly has uh, Zinfandel, but it also has some um, Mataro, which is what actually made the the Ridge Mataro once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And it also has a tiny bit of Palomino and a little bit of Muscat. So I was mind blown at this discovery. 
you'd found your Palomino vineyard. <laughs> I had, I had. And and Megan's my age as well. So it just really, it, we just really bonded in that moment. And we've spoken about it mm-hmm. since. And we were like, it really, it, well, there was just something special about that moment. Yeah. Um, and so I, I plucked up the courage uh, to firstly ask Abe. I was like, this is very cheeky of me. And I can't quite believe I'm asking this. But if there's any chance that I could make just a, a barrel of wine while I'm working with you, uh, would that be possible? And I, I honestly had to pluck up so much courage to ask that because I, I yeah, I thought that <laughs> I thought there was maybe no way. And he, yeah, shocked me and by just saying, of course you can. Um, I mean, he's, he's one of... I, I owe so much to him. He's one of just the most supportive and yeah, welcoming people and has helped me so much. And Beautiful. he said, but you, you have to find the fruit first. And I said, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Funny you say that. Yeah, about that. I might have found some. Um, so I emailed Megan and I said, just on the off chance, of course, uh, no pressure. But is there any possible way that I could buy just half a ton or, or whatever you'll give me? of Palomino grapes to, to have a go at making my own wine from these incredible old vines. They're planted in 1935 okay. on their own roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, yes, that's amazing. That's how it came about. So your own wine started. Can we stop for one second mm-hmm. and look at Palomino in terms of the fact that everybody describes this grape as just a neutral mm-hmm. grape variety. And also it doesn't have that high acidity. So for anybody who is reading on paper about Palomino, they would listen to this podcast now and think, Christina is really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Why does she want to make 100% Palomino when it's neutral and not great acidity? I mean, I think a lot of people probably think I'm totally crazy, but I'm okay with that, <laughs> especially when it comes to the English vineyard as well. I get a lot of funny looks. But uh-huh, um, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, of course, it has this reputation as being neutral and as being low acid, but I think it's much more complex than that. And I think when okay. we talk about neutral, and I, I also use that term a lot, I think we actually do a disservice to what that grape is capable of. Um, And it's the same really with Chardonnay, because Chardonnay is quite neutral. It doesn't have an awful lot of flavour on its own. Of course, it has some green apple, some lemon, but generally speaking, it is more on the neutral spectrum. Yet, Mm -hmm. of course, Chardonnay gives us some of the greatest white wines in the world. And I think that neutrality actually acts as a vehicle for it being able to express where it's grown. Mm-hmm. very very okay. clearly yeah. it's almost like it's a it's almost like it's a mirror to what yeah. it's being grown on um and i do feel the same way about palomino we just of course don't have enough examples yet for us to really compare okay. palomino from different soils different climates different places different people um we are getting there and i would love to host a big palomino tasting at some stage because i can probably think of about and i'm 30 sure you examples. will yeah <laughs> <laughs> But I think just having tasted these wines, um, the South Africans and the ones from Tenerife, despite the fact that Palomino has, in in inverted commas, low acidity, they all gave the impression of having acidity. And Mm -hmm. I think that comes more from that saline aspect of the wine. I am looking Mm -hmm. into it as well, because I think there might actually be a different proportion of like malic acid versus tartaric acids in Palomino. So it's known for being low in malic, but I think there is quite a lot of tartaric. tartaric. Yeah, exactly. So it, yeah, so it appears to have the higher acidity. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think as well that the vines, as they get older, 
that acidity level slightly changes yeah as well, yeah and i mean the clusters for my wine and the clusters of palomino i've seen they are often huge but the berries mm-hmm. have quite thick skins <gasps> i've seen a picture of you with your palomino <laughs> yeah, it's like the size of my head when you've written it <laughs> oh my god they are insane and like hanging down huge yes. yeah anyway sorry I, I interrupt you but i got excited because those berries were rather <laughs> large <laughs> um but pretty thick skins and so mm, I think all okay. of that sort of salty goodness lies within the skin. And if you're working in a way okay. where you allow that to come to the forefront, that gives this impression of freshness and almost like mm. almost like when you're out on a boat and you have that sea air, that's sort of really what I feel mm. in the wine. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Okay. So I feel like we, we need to not always be so quick to judge what's on paper in front of us or analysis yeah. as well. Because, I mean, my analysis, the pH is, it's pretty high, but the wine doesn't feel like that at all. Okay. So... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that sort of really drove me to just explore it a, a little bit more. And especially because it is such an underexplored style, underexplored wine, I really felt that I could do something that maybe tasted unique. Whereas, of course, if I want to try and replicate an amazing Chardonnay or an amazing Pinot Noir, I'll always feel, you know, okay, what what am I really contributing? Especially given that I am not um, a winemaker, I wanted to yeah, do something that yeah. really was sort of un, uncharted. Love it. You said about how you think maybe this salinity is trapped in those thick skins. So I'm assuming then you did some prolonged skin contact with the grapes? Yeah. So I actually based, um, I looked into how Envinate used to make their Benji Blanco. They've actually since, ah, yeah, okay. they since changed it so that the wine now has um, a floor component. Ah, but before okay. that, it didn't. You haven't made your wine with any No, I, I decided not to do any floor okay. on this wine just because I really mm-hmm. wanted to see the vineyard kind of in its naked state. Yes, um, okay. Without adding that yeasty flavours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I do love floor wines. I think, of course, that's that's what Palomino... <laughs> I got the feeling when you were talking about sherry, you got quite excited yeah. anyway. So yes, quite clearly. But okay, so no floor. So how did you go about this wine? So Abe and I drove up to Contra Costa to meet Megan and a team of friends and we picked the vineyard together on the 13th of August 2019 and then we drove the fruit down to LA and once we got to LA I foot stomped um, probably about 90% of the grapes um, just to firstly just to break the skins and to get some juice flowing so that we could put it in the basket press and press easier but also just to release some of that um, goodness within the skins Okay. And then, yeah. and why ninety percent and not hundred? Because I wanted to do a tiny bit of skin skin contact as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I then pressed that juice and we moved it into an old barrel, where it's just fermented naturally. And then yeah. with the ten percent, um, I destemmed by hand. And Abe was laughing at me in the corner, like, "Oh wow, <laughs> this is going to take a long time." <laughs> <laughs> thankfully it's a small yeah, project and thankfully it uh-huh. was before any of our other fruit had come in so i had we had time at this stage and i think i've seen a picture of that fruit in, in a yeah demijon, right looking like Bras- looking exactly like brussels, like sprouts. brussels sprouts so funny <laughs> <laughs> so i'm jumping ahead i'm sorry i'm ruining this no story. not at all not at all um yeah so i put these berries into a glass demijohn immersed it in juice and there they sat for eight weeks and yeah, fermented and then eventually that got blended into the barrel. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, then from there on, so the biggest issue with the wine is that I didn't quite get the yield that I thought that I would in terms of juice. Did you get a lot less? A little bit less um, through, mm-hmm. I think because Palomino is quite pulpy. 
Um, okay. But also because we hadn't, because it was very early on in us using this press, um, we hadn't quite yet figured out exactly how to get the best amount of yield out of the press. So I probably ended up with a little bit more of like essentially kind of free run light pressed versus the heavy press. But I think that's actually just made it into what it was meant to be. So has that added elegance, do you think, to the wine? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But so oh, the barrel wasn't quite full. Um, which was yeah driving me crazy because I wanted to make it in a reductive way, um, and so that meant that the wine, the barrel needed to be full. So I bought so many mm-hmm. glass marbles. <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell you how many marbles. Were they um, just literally marbles? Just that like maybe kid, like children would exactly, play around kid, with kids' or... toy marbles. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, toy marbles. To raise the fill level, and that's really clever though. I've heard of some winemakers doing that to make sure that the wine. Doesn't yeah, oxidize. exactly. That's, it's yeah, the brilliant. old mm-hmm. the old um, method in Burgundy growers used to do this. Ah, I didn't know. Okay. I'd love to have seen like inside the barrel with all those beautiful it was marbles pretty, yeah. at the bottom. <laughs> oh. Do you have any photos? I do actually, yeah. I'll send you some. Oh, okay, okay. Send, yeah. Yes, please. I want to see them. <laughs> but so the fill level rose, but it never got quite to the top and I ran out of money. So <laughs> eventually I was like, okay, I can't buy more marbles. I truly, there is no money in the bank. Oh, no. I'm just going to have to hope for the best. Oh. And um miraculously came back in February and um, we were going down, Aben, Aben our, our friend Raj Pa, were going down to prune a vineyard um, in the south of California, also a vineyard planted in the late 1800s mm-hmm. and um, tasted the wine at that moment and took the pipette out of the barrel and it was as pale as water, which shocked wow, me. I'd okay. been so nervous that I was going to end up with something that was very mm-hmm. oxidative. Thinking it was going to go yellow yeah. and deep. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a mystery, really. I think what happened is because it was on, exactly, leaves, it was maybe. on heavy leaves as well. Mm-hmm. The, the leaves were so healthy that we decided just to, yeah, put it on heavy leaves. Leave everything. Um, so yeah. they've mm-hmm. just soaked up any oxygen, really. Amazing. Did you do any batonage? Were you stirring no. the leaves or did you just leave all that heavy leaves just at the bottom of the barrel? It was completely left, yeah. Yep, left to its own devices. And then, I'm assuming, is this wine unfiltered? Unfined? Yes, unfiltered, unfined. I mean, of course, it has to be hands we, up. Uh-huh, we did, uh-huh. um, like, add sulfites. I, at the beginning, had thought, okay, I'll try and make this without sulfites because that's just sort of what I wanted to try. But it's so funny. I mean, we can, especially in the wine trade, I think people are very quick to judge on all sorts of levels. Um, When you're actually making your own wine, it's a whole different story. (laughs) And (laughs) early on in the fermentation, it had a very bizarre fermentation curve. It was fermenting really slowly. Usually wines have like a, a very rapid, they ferment a little bit slowly and then suddenly they'll ferment fast. With mine, it was just mm, so sluggish. Okay. And were you a bit preoccupied? I was just nervous. And and yeah, Abe, even yeah, Abe yeah. was like, I've never seen a fermentation curve like this. Like, weird. Wow. Um, okay. And then. Were you tempted to throw in some commercial use no, at any point? Or were you no. like, nope? No, it's I not I would happening. do much okay. to avoid that. I think if that had, if it had been, if it had been stuck or anything like that, then I would have just added the bucket from another wine that was fermenting. Okay. Um, okay. But luckily it never got to that, but it did start to, there was something in the wine that just I didn't like in terms of taste. And that was like, it was just some, there was something bacterial or something going on that just made me so nervous. So after that, I was like, okay, immediately, hey, where, where are the sulfites? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we did add some at that moment. And then um, yeah. it was, yeah, sulfited, I think twice more over winter and mm-hmm. the total sulfites are at 62 so it's still pretty low well if you wanted to enter that into the or not enter if you wanted to bring that to the raw wine festival you'd totally be fine i think isn't it 70 yeah, parts per million yeah. of uh, sulfur and you're fine yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, i'm so glad that i did that because the wine is better for it definitely 
Okay, yeah. Well, it, you know, it, I think it, sulfur gets a really, really bad It really rap, does, Obviously, yeah. it, it is there to protect the wine. And if you are going to put all your love and soul into a project and then have it entirely oxidize or have mm-hmm. a bacterial spoilage and for it to taste, you know, well, for me... A wine should not taste like no. I know <laughs> there are there are some people that love their natural wine and like mmm, it's great, it's furry. For me, not so much. Yeah, well, I, I adore. There are so many natural wines that I adore, and I mean, what do we even mean by natural wine? But for me, there are so many no sulfite wines that I. I mean, some of my favorite wines in the world are made in that way, and that I that truly. Mm-hmm take my breath away. And if I'm able to make wines like that, then I definitely will. Um, but I also think we ultimately have to want to, well, me anyway, I can't speak for everyone. I wanted to make the purest wine that was yes. true to the fruit that it came from and that the vineyard. vineyard. And yeah, that was just how yeah. this wine mm-hmm. went. So who knows, maybe in the future, yeah, I'll make one, perfect. manage to make one without sulfites. But yeah, I think it's just, I take it wine by wine. You have to let the grape speak, I guess, right? That's the whole point. If you are minimal intervention and you want to have the truest purest example Mm -hmm. the grapes will tell you what they need I guess so you need to be flexible yeah (laughs) so you have this wine what did you call it so I called it the alley Mm -hmm. for multiple reasons firstly the vineyard's actually shaped kind of like an alleyway it's very very long and it has an old train track on one side and then like a road and houses on the other side plus then also alley is actually the old English word for marble (laughs) That's brilliant. That I know. I mm-hmm. So funny. And plus, it's just sort of a nod to my own journey in wine. So my own alleyway, my own pathway. Oh, that's beautiful. And now how does this wine taste? So it ended up tasting really how I'd hoped that it would taste. It has that lovely salinity. And on the on the palate in particular, it's so salty. And I think that's because I did that little, <laughs> that, that 10% of skin contact, I really think brought uh-huh. something incredible to the wine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has this interesting round mouthfeel, which I think is a nod to the, yeah, the desert sands and also the, the heat of Contra Costa, where it comes from. So it's mm-hmm. almost like you get like a lick of sunshine in the wine without the alcohol. It's only 12%. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So it has this really interesting mouthfeel that I love. Mm. And I think it's so like a brightness and a texture. Yeah, definitely. Brightness, texture and salinity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Love it. How many bottles did you produce? Just 202. <laughs> oh. oh, and some people in the UK can actually purchase some, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's all been sold. Um, it's sold out now, but there is some I love still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still blown away and so grateful to everyone that supported me on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still some available in Noble Rot. Um, there's some in the Mulray and Evelyn's Table. So that's amazing. So for anyone living in London, if you want to go out, yeah. you can find it on their list. But is there any to actually purchase for home? Sadly not, no. But there's also <gasps> there's no. also some at Sager and Wild if anyone wants okay. to go to a wine bar. But yeah, it's sadly all oh. gone now. Yeah. No. But you know, the amazing thing is just actually listen to your journey and your decisions and to know that you're an advocate of this great variety that should get more praise. Yeah. So what, what did you learn on your journey of this winemaking experience? Um, I think more than ever, I just learned again about humility and Mm. taking every day as it comes and being open to learning. And I think that's the greatest thing that we can take from winemaking is just there's always something new that happens. There's always something unexpected. There's always new decisions to be made. I mean, on that journey, of course, we also made uh, all of Abe's new wines from the LA Rio Wine Company. Yes, Um, of course you did. Yeah. Mm. And it 
it's just every single fermentation is its own beast and it's just incredible it's so it's you're really working with something that's alive in terms of bacteria yeast everything coming together to create something that is so yeah that we all love and yeah i think just being able to take all of that in and then also understanding how to react to each fermentation so of course some fermentations are delightfully easy and you don't even have to worry other ones you have to cool down other ones you have to rescue we literally had to rescue one <laughs> how did you rescue it, it was quite incredible um it was another palomino oh palomino <laughs> of course that that abe and i had discovered the vineyard in fresno this amazing biodynamically farmed vineyards in okay. the most unlikely location um Uh and the wine it just wasn't fermenting and it was definitely because we had put it into the cold room too soon Mm -hmm. so it just didn't have a chance to take off and very quickly it started to really smell like acetate oh no and we were sort of like okay let's try and just take it outside let it warm up and it just mm-hmm. it started getting it, yeah it was just taking a nosedive and Abe who is generally the most optimistic person that I know he turned to me looked across the grapes and he just said to me you know I, th- I think we might have lost it <laughs> and oh, I no. said no. please say please say your goodbyes <laughs> <laughs> no um so we decided to press it and hope that okay. that would that would sort of um yeah, help everything to, it was it was skin fermented at that stage, um, help everything to take off. It still wasn't taking off. It smelt terrible. But then we decided to add buckets of juice from a fermenting pecorino. And honestly, so it, it, it began properly fermenting. It still smelt really bad. But 14 days later, it was amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> it oh had fully recovered mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. gave it to people to taste. And out of curiosity, we, we just said, you know, what do you think? And not saying anything from our side. And they were like, oh my God, it's amazing. It tastes like, yeah, it tastes just so fresh and so saline. And we looked at each other and we were like, you would not believe that this wine was almost destined for the bin. Wow. Oh, that is actually a rescue story. Yeah. Which this wine that you've rescued, what name will it have if people were looking for that wine? So that one. They could purchase it. Yeah. So that one's actually all sold now. It was 2019. It was 2019 Raisin City. But there is still some okay. Raisin City 2020 in the market, which um, okay. which was, uh, I believe, a perfectly happy fermentation. But yeah. Well, they can drink that and think of the story of the previous years. Yes. <laughs> Can't they? Oh, dear. Well, I'll tell you one thing that you've taught me and for anybody either in the wine industry or wanting to get into the wine industry, which is if you want to do something ask because you've asked these people can I intern can I have your grapes can I make some wine and you've got yeses and I guess it goes to show that you know all of us that work in the wine industry we definitely don't do it for the money we do it for the love and the stories and the memories that's what keeps things exciting and I guess actually a lot of people really just want to share their own passion and will bring you in so definitely yeah and it took a lot of courage to to ask those questions and still now it's something I struggle with I think as women we often struggle more as well to ask Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but really I think just yeah plucking up the courage and I mean what's the worst that can happen someone says no there's no yeah Yeah. and you ask somebody else yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. right well everybody go drink more palomino I think that's the message (laughs) and figure out what wine Christina's going to do next actually what's the plan for your next wine do you have any idea obviously you're going to have to wait for a yes from somebody (laughs) I mean I would love to make that wine again sometime but I really want to have the the full time to dedicate to it 
Um, yeah, okay. So I don't know when that might be, but I also love to make Palomino from other old vines, but I, I, I okay. don't know where. I need to I need to go on some more explorations, find out where they are. Yeah, there, there, are, there are many ideas. If anyone can find the Palomino, it's you. <laughs> And another wine I'd, I'd love to give a shout out to as well, actually, is the, the wines coming from Muchara Leclapa. What? So, what did you just say? <laughs> Muchara Leclapa. Okay, Muchara Leclapa. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a winery, um, they are really sort of reimagining what can be done with dry, unfortified Palomino. From vineyards in San Lucar de Barameda. Okay. And they really are just game changing. Perfect. And they exist and they haven't sold out. So everyone, don't be disappointed. You can buy their wines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So if you enjoyed listening to Christina tell us all about her winemaking decisions to make her Palomino wine, you will love next week. We will instead be going out of the winery as Christina has planted her very own vineyard in England. And it is fascinating what decisions she's made in trellising, in her choice of the great varieties she's planted, all of her decisions, many of which go against the grain. What's more interesting is how she explains all of her thinking. So if you want to get closer to the land and to the soil, feel it beneath your fingernails. Well, almost. You are going to love next week. Let me finish with a wine quote. And this one is from Benjamin Franklin. The discovery of a wine is of greater moment than the discovery of a constellation. The universe is too full of stars. Maybe your next big discovery could be Palomino. So wine friends, that is it for today. Please, if you are still listening at the end of this podcast, I would be so grateful for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. This makes the podcast more discoverable for others and it is the best way to support my work. Share it with your wine-loving friends and do take a moment to drink authentically, inquisitively and search out that wine story. Have a wonderful week and until next Monday, cheers to you.